So hello, it's uh, Zane Horowitz and the crew at the Oregon Poison Center for the uh, April 2016 Journal Club. And this is about pediatric sending amounts. And, um, you know, one of the things I think all of us when we're on call, whether it's the fellows or the faculty, you know, we get called by our nurses and pharmacists and they go, you know, the Poison Center, just, the Poison Dex just doesn't have very much information on this, so I called you as if. We have more information somehow buried away back in our brains, but we often don't. So to try to address those problems, I picked eight substances with very little relationship to each other, practically no relationship to each other, except all these studies are mostly in kids, and it's these accidental exposures to a wide variety of xenobiotics in children that are not on everyone's radar screen. A lot of these studies we'll talk about took like 10 years to find 100 cases kind of thing. Um, and we'll talk about, like, do we need to send them in? What do we worry about? There's a little bit of pharmacology and pharmacokinetics on each of these buried within there. But they're all sort of not really orphan drugs, but drugs that we don't talk about um, that much and sometimes have conflicting evidence for what we should do in Poison Dex based on some random case report. With these, I also... At the end of each presentation, I'll, I went in and checked the webpoison.org, which is that online database for who should get sent in. So after we talk about the article, I'll tell you what webpoison.org is the threshold for each. Not that we are going to agree with them a lot all the time or even many of the time, but they tend to be reasonably conservative on send-in amounts. So the first article I'm going to talk about uh, is the human bromethylene exposures reported to a U.S. statewide poison control center. In this case, it's the um, California Poison Center, which did several of these articles. And California is a big state with 30-plus million people in it. Then they have four poison centers, and they get loads of calls, I think close to 200,000 calls per year. So it's a good database to search. And a lot of these articles had to search for 10 or 15 years just to get the critical handful of cases to make some sense and some data. So this is on bromethylene. So people are familiar with bromethylene. We've been getting more and more phone calls on this. Although it was discovered in the 1970s, it wasn't approved by the Environmental Protection Agency until 1984. And really it was sort of a, a minor niche in the rodenticide market until uh, 2008 when the EPA enacted a policy restricting over-the-counter sale of the vast majority of the rodenticide market, which was the long-acting anticoagulant rodenticide. So those were starting to be phased out in late 2008. By June 2011, it was for any new sales to occur. So there's still plenty of that old rodenticide, long-acting anticoagulant sitting in people's barns and garages and you know whatnot. So we'll still see diminishing amounts of that. But the substance that has come in to replace it is bromethylene, so it's been around for a while, but there hasn't been a lot of case reports, so we're scratching our heads a lot of times, figuring out what to do with it. It's been increasing since the mid-2000s, and although overall the total rodenticide exposures have been declining, its mechanism of action is that it uncouples oxidative phosphorylation, but... It tends to have a unique cytotoxic edema in the brain, which can be delayed, and it may be due to some of the active metabolites that uh, uh, exist. So in an effort to try to give us some triage guidelines, 
This was, as almost all of these articles are, a retrospective review of one of the existing databases out there. This time it's the California Poison System uh, Control System Database. They have 38 million people in California, and they looked for 17 years, from 1997 to 2014, for single-substance ingestions of bromethylene. And over 17 years, they found 129 human exposure cases, which 126 met their criteria to be reviewed for this <coughs> article. Um, calls actually peaked in the last couple of years of that search, which makes sense as they tended to replace the predominant uh, rodenticide on the market. Um, as we'll see with many of these uh, ingestions, the age range from seven months to 90 years, so literally the earliest creepy corollary and kind of kids all the way up to old folks. But the, as you will, the, the thing that's over and over again, we see the median age is two years old, and that's sort of a recurrent theme with many of the articles. Males made up a little more than half of 53%. And um, almost 90% involved patients who had no effects. So maybe that's one of the bottom lines. Now, what about the other 10%? So 10 patients had some minor outcome. Three were lost to follow-up, but there weren't any serious outcomes or deaths. Um, most cases were managed at home. Um, about a third were sent to the emergency department. Uh, two of them were actually referred to the emergency department by the poison center. Um, one was admitted to a medical floor, um, who was a one-year-old who had some GI symptoms. The second was a 28-year-old, really not what we're talking about, these pediatric cases who had an intentional self-harm. And the approximate ingested dose uh, really was only known in a minority of these cases. But um, a little bit about bromethylene, it's fast-acting, but its characteristic in humans is not very well uh, spelled out. Um, there's a lot of animal cases of toxicosis. Signs usually occur within 24 hours. They tend to predominate with hyperstimulatory effects, such as tremors and seizures and hyperthermia, and then it's followed by a coma and paralysis. Um, there's a case report in a 21-year-old who, in self-harm, ate eight packs of this stuff, and he presented to an emergency room a day later, 24 hours later, and he was fine, uh, but uh, he received a lot of psychiatric medications, and over the next seven days, he became unresponsive, flaccid, and died on day seven. Um, and then a post-mortem analysis of his liver and brain demonstrated the presence of the demethylated metabolite bromethylene, consistent with his stated ingestion. And sort of this cerebral spongiosis, I think, is the thing that we've seen in animals, and he's the, like the only human case that sort of has a post-mortem uh, exam to suggest that we're susceptible to the same things. There was a 33-year-old female who ate two bricks of Tomcat, which is one of the major brands out there. I'm not picking on anyone particularly, but it's 0.01% promethalin. She had a little bit of nausea, vomiting, and GI. Uh, upset, but for reasons unknown, she kind of got the full core press. She was sedated, innovated, got charcoal, lavage, whole bowel irrigation, IV fluids, and interlipid emulsion as well. So the whole, the whole gamut of our um, options for treating, and she was extubated and did fine 48 hours later. Whether she needed all that, very hard to say.
So um, basically, they're finding in toddlers who have mostly exploratory things, they have minimal symptoms. It's consistent with the NPS, NPDS data, which is the data of the national poison centers, the other 49 states. Uh, most of them are minor symptoms, and there was in that database, in their database, no moderate and no major. So I think you know, for kids, most of us with these accidental ingestions feel pretty comfortable watching them at home. And, you know, they even suggest that, you know, maybe these potentially, because of these case reports, are more problematic than long-acting anticoagulants. But we've had long-acting anticoagulant cases that have had um, serious outcomes with bleeding and self-ingestions, but very few pediatric cases of long-acting anticoagulants have any sort of serious um, ingestions because they just don't get enough of it because the concentration similarly is point something zero percent of the product the fodder that it's put in. It's usually like in a kibble kind of uh, product that the rat would like and eat and perhaps a toddler would like and eat, but in general not enough of it to cause problems in a toddler-sized mammal, whereas in a rodent-sized mammal, sort of, they die. So just for reference, and for all of these, I am going to reference the webpoison.org send-in amount. So they have a single send-in amount from six months to 79 years, which is greater than 0 0.1 milligram per kilogram. Um, I, I think that's conservative. That means a 10-kilo one-year-old toddler can take a milligram of this and get sent in, which would be a lot of you Tomcat. You know, you'd have to eat a few boxes of Tomcat, so maybe. But I think most of these cases probably don't rise to that level. I think we can be reassured um, on the toddler exposures that we could probably watch the vast majority of home. Um, I think for the intentional exposures, like every other intentional exposure, we'll send them in because who knows what else they may have gotten into and, you know, it could be a problem. I think time will tell in the next few years whether these get to be more of a problem than a long-acting rodenticides were, but for all of us who are on call and all of our nurses and pharmacists and the other poison centers listening, I think we can probably feel this is probably a little bit safer on a milligram per kilogram basis than the, the anticoagulant rodenticides were. So next up is... Um, you know, of the SSR, SSRI medications, the ones that seem to always give us pause is citalopram. And so this is an article comparing citalopram to the rest of its cousins. And Matt, take it away on that one. Yeah, so this is an article from 2012 from Clintox, and it's entitled Comparison of Citalopram and Other SSRI Ingestions in Children. Primary author is Wendy Kleinschwartz out of Maryland. <clears throat> it starts off with an introduction that there's pretty good data uh, in adults um, about the minimum dose of uh, citalopram causing seizures, which is 400 milligrams, um, and then from 0% it increases to 18% and 47% when you increase the dosage from, say, 600 and 1900 milligrams and then 1900 to 5200 milligrams. Um, uh, uh, and in addition to seizure activity, uh, citalopram has been shown to be associated with uh, significant QTC prolongation, so EKG changes and cardiac dysrhythmias. 
The question here is whether the same associations hold for children. Um, and the authors state that data on SSRI overdoses in kids younger than six is pretty limited. So their objective um, was to compare clinical effects and hazard index of citalopram with the other SSRIs in acute single uh, medication ingestions in children younger than six to determine whether citalopram ingestions um, experience more serious toxicity, specifically seizures and or cardiac dysrhythmias. It's a retrospective review of NPDS data from the past, well, from a 10-year period between 1999 to December of uh, uh, 2009, um, again in children younger than six years old. And they defined outcomes as sort of no effect, minor effect, moderate, major, or death. The ones we should be concerned with here as far as their study results are major effect, which is defined as life-threatening signs or symptoms or if the patient manifested significant residual disability. And then death is obviously death. Um, they defined uh, serious toxicity um, as seizures or cardiac toxicity. And here specifically, it was conduction disturbances and or other EKG changes. Um, and then they defined their hazard index as uh, the sum of major effects and deaths over the total number of cases. Um, and reported per 1,000 cases. In addition, they tried to gather data about the citalopram dose um, ingestion in order to try and build a case for dose-response relationship uh, and eventually an argument whether or not to revise the guidelines, but we'll get to that in a little bit. So let's jump right to the results. They had um, a total of... Um, 63 or so thousand pediatric SSRI ingestions that were reported during this study period, of which 35,000 met inclusion criteria. Um, and just to give you a sense, if we jump to table one, citalopram represents <coughs> a total of 3,700 cases of the 35,000. And the most common, which was sertraline, is almost four times that number at 13,000. So relative paucity of cases, but at least um, you know approaching 3,800 cases uh, on which to base the results. So the overall hazard index for all SSRIs was 0 0.34. Um, the hazard index for citalopram specifically was 0 0.8, which was 2.8 times higher than the hazard index of other SSRIs. All of them, other all the other ones combined, which was 0 0.285. Um, however, this result was not statistically significant with a p-value of 0.12. Um, there is note that there was one death that they saw of the 35,000, although this was a homicide and only involved sertraline because the mother who drowned the child uh, first um, uh, sedated that child with sertraline intentionally. Um, so... In table two, this really focuses on comparison of citalopram to the other SSRIs as far as clinical effects. And we see that children with citalopram ingestions did develop um, seizures and EKG changes more often than children who ingested other SSRIs. So we're, they break it down by other clinical effects like tachycardia and vomiting, agitation, hyperthermia. But the ones that we really care about, the seizures, we're looking at five out of 3,700 which is 0.13% versus 10 of 31,000 in the other group. 
So while the odds ratio is 4.2 for citalopram, it's important to keep in mind that um, there were only five seizures or five patients with seizures, either multiple or discrete single seizures out of 3,700. Um, uh, cardiac toxicity, similarly, was higher in the citalopram group. It had an odds ratio of 3.0, but again, the overall number of cardiac toxicity was only nine patients of 3,700 versus 25 of 31,000. So it's about, you know, if you're looking at seizures, it's about 0.13%. If you're looking at cardiac toxicity, it's about a quarter of a percent. So just important to keep in mind. No deaths in the citalopram group, and only three major clinical effects in the citalopram group, again, out of 3,700. Um, in the subsequent sort of sub-analyses, there was no readily identifiable dose threshold at which more serious um, effects were noted in the citalopram group. So moving on to the discussion, um, it seems as though the data support um, this trend of uh, sort of overall, while infrequent, still relatively higher uh, hazard ratios and clinical effects, specifically seizures and cardiac toxicity in citalopram compared to other SSRIs. They do talk a little bit about um, the potential mechanisms, although it's neither one, either for seizures or arrhythmias, is really known. They talk a little bit about the uh, citalopram's metabolite, DDCT, as well as um, some possible inhibition of GABAergic transmission, um, and then possible QTC prolongation effects as well. But again, this is all putative. Um, and I think in general, the overall incidence of toxicity, both cardiac and seizure, was too low to determine any useful dose-response relationships. So getting back to this idea of adjusting guidelines, the current guidelines here noted are ascending amount of 100 milligrams, which they base as five times the adult dose, 20 milligrams. Um, and they say that the current guideline is to manage any uh, pediatric ingestion up to 100 milligrams at home. Um, based on the paucity of data here, there wasn't enough um, uh, to, to justify lowering the guidelines. Um, the two cases with the most serious toxicity, they note, seizure and hypertension, these children only ingested 10 milligrams, but they sort of, the rebuttal is that if you lower the send-in amount to 10 milligrams, that's one tablet, so we would be seeing a lot more children, uh, presumably with very low incidence of uh, serious side effects. So they couldn't justify adjusting the guidelines. There's a number of limitations to the study, as you might expect, I won't necessarily go into that. Um, but again, the overall conclusion is that citalopram um, may cause seizures and EKG changes more often than other SSRIs, although still uncommon and, um, and relatively unlikely to cause serious <coughs> toxicity or death. So it still remains a thorny issue. Um, <clears throat> the guidelines, uh, both so the national guidelines are published by AACT and the WebPC send an amount from six months to 79 years is 100 milligrams for accidental, whether it's an extra pill in an adult or just a single toddler ingestion. And now I'm gonna to have to say that for kids, I think that's conservative and for adults, that's super conservative as far as the amount. Um, but, you know, they have these sporadic cases of 
a seizure here and an arrhythmia there. I'm not sure I worry so much about the QT being prolonged up to 500, 550. I don't know what my threshold would be. But if you look at the table, you know, for everybody, I mean, it's like one out of a thousand kids have a serious outcome. And, you know, how many do we have to send in before, you know, a number needed to refer and spend a lot of money on in the emergency room to save three people from a major outcome because there really were no deaths. Um, you know, part of it, I think, is also is like, what is the parents, you know, how would they react to having a kid seize at home if you tell them, well, you got about a one in a hundred chance or one in a thousand chance of your kid having a seizure, would you be able to handle that and be calm and call 911 if that happened? I don't know. I mean, some parents would, some parents wouldn't. So I think in the absence of somebody who maybe have seen several other children have febrile seizures and not get uh, too worried about it, um, I think we're stuck at the 100 milligram threshold, although there are instances where we might do bad weather and long distances might want to err on the side of watching a few more of these at home, um, specifically with citalopram. Uh, the story with escitalopram, I think, is safer. We're not going to get into it with this article, but it, it probably lacks that DDTC metabolite, which people have speculated, and based on some science, uh, is actually the, prob the one that causes the cardiac effect. So that's the one that causes sodium, potassium, and calcium channel blockade. So I guess the answer is with so many SSRIs on the market, I mean, why do we still have citalopram? Is it that much better than the other six? And I don't know that it is. And I think they just did a better marketing campaign. That's certainly not the leading product, but it's it's out there. And we get a couple of these a week, I think, and we don't know what to do. Well, our criteria for what to do with them are very conservative. We end up watching these kids overnight um, until they're stable. Um, so moving on to one where we really have some morbidity and mortality with in kids. Um, Jillian's going to talk about uh, central alpha two agonists, which is the clonidine and others group, and maybe she'll maybe reflect a little bit on her own studies on which kids get intubated um, as well while she's talking about that. Great, yeah. So this is unintentional pediatric exposures to central alpha two agonists reported to the NPDS. This is Wang et al. And uh, just a, a brief intro: alpha two adrenergic agonists essentially stimulate alpha-2 receptors in the brain, and the overall effect is decreased sympathetic flow or sympatholysis. And the medications include clonidine, guanfacine, and tizanidine. And these are often prescribed for ADHD, hypertension, spasticity, opioid withdrawal, Tourette syndrome, uh, headache, nicotine dependence, restless legs, and tic disorders. So lots of different things. And when you uh, have something that acts on central alpha-2 adrenergic receptors, you can develop CNS depression, bradycardia, hypotension, meiosis, and hypothermia. So those are the effects that we're looking for. And this paper is a retrospective chart review of NPDS calls about alpha-2 agonists from uh, January 2000 through December 2011. And... Uh, the, the study team searched for clonidine, guanfacine, and tizanidine using uh, specific codes that the NPDS uses. 
and they look for single substance unintentional exposures for kids under 12 years of, of age. And they looked at demographics and recorded the healthcare facility and the symptoms that the kids had, what treatments were given, and then the overall severity of effects. And they found 27,825 clonidine exposures over the study time frame, 6143 guanfacine and 856 tizanidine exposures. Um, the median age uh, for clonidine was four, for guanfacine was six, uh, and for dizanidine was two. So mostly these are pediatric exploratory. And over the 11 years, interestingly, there was a significant increase in poison center calls for all alpha-2 agonist medications, with an increase of 5.9% per year. And the, when it came to clonidine exposures, um, these were the ones that were associated with more respiratory symptoms. Um, again, this was only in very few of the exposures. So in about 3% of the clonidine exposures that were reported, um, there were respiratory symptoms. Um, CNS depression in about 45% and bradycardia in about 10%. Um, and of all of those clonidine exposures, so 27,800 of them, there were seven cardiac arrests and three deaths. So as Dr. Horowitz mentioned, there can be serious toxicity, but most of the time that is not what's happening. And um, clonidine exposures received the, the most and the widest variety of interventions, including um, activated charcoal in 18%, uh, atropine in just under 2%, um, IV fluids uh, in just under a fifth of them, um, and 2.6% of those patients were intubated. <coughs> Um, there were 220 clonidine patch exposures, median age of two years, so again, peds exploratory. Most of those were managed in a healthcare facility, about 70% of them. And uh, those, again, had relatively low rates of respiratory depression, so 3.2%. CNS depression in about, about half of them, so again, that's probably the most common finding that we see. And then 17% with bradycardia about 10% with hypotension. Um, the uh, patients similarly received uh, IV fluids, atropine, naloxone, about 2% of them required intubation, so similar to the oral clonidine um, pill ingestion. And you can see in, in the figure there that there's a, a, a trend in, in increasing number of alpha-2 agonist medication exposures over that decade or so. Uh, that, this, uh, that these patients were, were looked at. And then table one shows the symptoms reported. And again, there, of the effects, there's some respiratory effects. Um, there uh, are CNS effects and then some cardiac effects, so bradycardia hypotension and then very rarely cardiac arrest. So uh, the major discussion points are the, the increase in unintentional PEDS exposures over the 11-year time period. Um, that the common effects, as we mentioned, were CNS depression, mostly which, uh, most of which was drowsiness and lethargy, and then bradycardia was also common. Very few required critical interventions like intubation. And the, the major point here is that the, the numbers of prescriptions of clonidine and guanfacine have almost tripled 
just between 2009 and 2010. And in a recent study that we published from here, looking at national data, we did note that there were significant increases in clonidine exposure that were intubated over time. And we suspect, and I suspect based on this data too, that there is probably more clonidine or guanfacine being prescribed out there. And the more of medications like this that are around the home, the more PEDS exploratory cases we'll see. And because the CNS depression is the most common presenting feature, especially if you have to transfer a child to a pediatric facility, intubation um, may be performed um, as a, particularly as a conservative measure for transport. And again, that's all conjecture, but we, we, we think that there are increasing cases because of this. And, you know, acknowledging here that although we saw increases intubation, in intubations in, in our study, intubation remains a rare event in these cases, so 2% uh, overall. Um, and likewise with the cardiac effects, so bradycardia and hypotension were, were relatively common but did not need atropine or vasopressors very often. So about 2% of the kids needed atropine and half percent required vasopressors. So mostly this is supportive care and observation of, of, of the children that were symptomatic. Uh, they do note that the clonidine patch exposures were less common in the pill formulations, but that when uh, children did get into the patches, they had more severe effects. And that might be because a patch can carry up to nine milligrams of clonidine. It's intended to be worn and released slowly over time. So if a child chews on the patch and gets into a large dose, then there's certainly potential for worse toxicity um, and for more for prolonged toxicity as well. And in those cases, if, if uh, the child is um, protecting their airway, something like activated charcoal or whole bowel, bowel irrigation has been suggested, acknowledging that CNS depression can, can cause problems in that case. And um, they conclude by saying they, they really didn't find evidence to support the, quote, one pill can kill uh, concept with clonidine. Clonidine has typically been one of those medications that's listed on the one pill can kill list. Um, there are a couple of fatalities. The first was a two-year-old female, potentially up to 55 tablets of an unknown strength of clonidine and was, was found uh, unresponsive. Um, she was intubated, got dopamine, epi, and, and unfortunately died 48 hours later. And her twin, who also got into the pills, um, also required um, intubation and vasopressor support, but recovered. And then uh, there was a compounding error that led to another fatality in a six-year-old who unfortunately also presented apneic bradycardic and hypotensive and developed worsening uh, <coughs> hemodynamic instability and cerebral edema despite supportive care with intubation. And then there was a third death uh, for which uh, only limited data was available. And so they, they report the usual limitations to all of this NPDES data, that it re relies on the caller to provide the information. We can't really confirm that the, what the dose was or what exactly they took. And very rarely do we get laboratory confirmation of these exposures. But in general, I think this is useful overall data um, to give us some information about um, alpha-2 agonists. And I think the take-home point is that they can be quite severe, but that that is a very rare occurrence, and so I wouldn't uh, agree with including them on the one pill can kill, but to take a careful history and <coughs> make an appropriate disposition based on the, on the child's symptoms.
Yeah, so these are ones where maybe we get less calls because I think we end up sending many, if not all, in. If you look at the web poison uh, database, I mean, literally, it's like a pill of either any one of these in a, a under four year old uh, will end up getting sent in. So six months to four years old, it's point zero one milligram per kilogram or greater than 0.1 milligram, which is the smallest pill for clonidine, for guafacine, it's greater than a milligram, and for tizanidine, it's 0 0.05 milligrams per kilogram, which is even a lower threshold, uh, not a lower threshold, but still boils down to a single pill. I think the age differences probably reflect that we see the toddlers being uh, not prescribed, but their older siblings being prescribed both the tizanidine and the and the guafacine uh, for ADHD, and maybe tizanidine is less likely because it's more of an adult medicine for muscle relaxation, although its mechanism of action and what it does and its risks seem a virtually equivalent at equipotent doses. So I think we're stuck having to send a lot of these, not all, every one of these kids in that actually gets into a pill. Um, I mean, I think there's very few exceptions. We can certainly use those guidelines, and if somehow they fit a small portion of a pill and we watched at home, um, maybe, but it really doesn't give us a lot of wiggle room. But I agree the one pill can kill notion is sort of makes me cringe, and this helps support the fact that the few deaths were kids who got 55 tablets or some other um, large amount through other eras. We're going to move up to Peter next, and we're going to talk about, this is one where there really is almost no data out there. Um, these are kids who get into presumptively their grandparents' or great-grandparents' anti-dementia drugs, which through pharmacology of these agents could be serious on the face value, but let's see what the data show. Yeah, this is a great article for me. Actually, the primary author is my advisor from residency. Did not realize that when I picked it. <laughs> but um, we set up with a review of there's about 5 million people in the United States at this point in time diagnosed with Alzheimer's dementia. And this is probably, not surprisingly, this leads to increased use of anti-dementia medications. At the time of publication, there were four approved uh, anti-Alzheimer's medications, Benepazil, Mabantine, uh, Revisostigmine, and Galantamine. Um, they were approved by the FDA at that point in time. Um, there, none of them were approved for use in children. There have been pediatric exposures, likely, as Saint said, due to be getting into your grandparents or great-grandparents' uh, medications. There is a paucity, a paucity meaning almost a near absence of literature uh, regarding the pediatric exposures to anti-dementia medications. So, why not take a look at it? They did as they reviewed the statewide poison center database control for the uh, entire state of California. Use California Poison Control System and to identify all the cases of anti dementia drug exposures for pediatric patients from January 1st, 2001 until December 31st, 2011. Um, all cases for pediatrics were defined as anyone that's under the age of 19 years old and reported exposure had to involve an anti dementia medication. They tried to get as much data as possible age, patient weight, depending on the drug, the exact dose, or the potential. Maximum dose, including your route, um, as well as the presence of co-ingestions, uh, the reason for exposure, any symptoms, length of hospital stays, and the outcomes. Um, the, exact the exact maximum dose was used to calculate a dose per kilogram <coughs> for each drug type whenever that was possible. Um, 
intentional ingestions were defined as deliberate ingestions with intent for self-harm, and then the unintentional were the ingestions of a patient's or another person's medications without therapeutic intent. Um, therapeutic errors were defined as the incorrect dosage of the patient's prescribed medicines. They went ahead and redacted quite a bit of the information from the chart and then had primary author review them. Uh, during this entire 10-year period, they were able to get 189 pediatric exposures to anti-dementia medications. Uh, the number of cases reported increased over the years, initially with just four in 2001 to 33 in 2011. 53% of those cases were male, with a median age of about 2.3, a large range. I mean, we're eight months to 12 years, but none getting into the teenager adult years. 80% uh, of the exposures were in patients that were two years of age or younger, and the weight was available in about 57% of the patients. They were able to come up with an a mean weight of about 13.9 kilos, again with a range that goes from 7 kilos to 61 kilos. 99% of the exposures were unintentional. There was one intentional exposure, which was reported in a 12-year-old who took 25.5 milligrams of revisostigmine in a suicide attempt. She became diaphoretic, had GI distress, and some mild hypotension, but recovered fully within 24 hours. There was also one therapeutic error in a 2-year-old who was reported to have gotten double the dose of his 2.75 milligram galantamine, which had been prescribed to him for autism, and he developed no symptoms at all. 99% of the exposures were oral. Two cases were involved where children placed transdermal patches of revisostigmine on themselves, and no symptoms were reported there. Denepazil was the most common drug involved in the exposures, followed by memantine. 62% uh, of the cases involved exposure to just one single anti-dementia drug. 6% uh, of cases had more than one anti-dementia drug. And 7 out of 11 de uh, involved denepazil and memantine being used together. 36% involved exposure to co-ingestions. And on average, there were about 2.3 co-ingestions recorded, anywhere from a range of from 1 to 10, which I kind of doubt I wonder if those are grandpa or someone spills their pills on the ground and mm. you don't know what they got into. Mm -hmm. The actual dose was available in about 15% of cases with the maximum possible dose in 86% of cases. The largest dose involved a two-year-old male who could have gotten into 60 milligrams of denepazole and 120 milligrams of memantine. And they had some mild central nervous system depression, which resolved with observation in the emergency department. They have a nice table below that um, details the number of cases and all the drugs involved and the weights and the doses. Um, symptoms were reported in about 38 cases, so about 20% of all the cases, um, and in 23, so 20% of the single, single agent exposures. Uh, GI symptoms predominated and followed by CNS depression in 15 out of those cases. Um, despite having gotten into revised stigma and other things, no bradycardia, seizures, or fasciculations were reported. One child was noted to have respiratory difficulty in the pre-hospital setting following three milligrams of revisostigmine, but this resolved spontaneously on arrival to the emergency department and no other respiratory symptoms were reported. 100, or about 53% of the cases were managed at home, 47% made to a healthcare facility. No treatment or intervention other than observation was performed in 62, so about a third of the cases. Uh, 25 roughly 13%, were given activated charcoal. Atropine was given in one case to a two-year-old who had significant drooling 
after possibly ingesting up to 36 milligrams of rifazostigmine. This resolved with 0.25 milligrams of IV atropine. Seven percent of children were, of the children were admitted to a hospital, and in all cases, they were discharged within one day. No deaths were reported. By chi-square analysis, oral rifazostigmine exposures were found to be associated significantly with more symptoms and healthcare facility evaluations when compared to the other three, with a p-value of less than 0.05, but mantine was found to be associated with significantly more asymptomatic exposures. So the discussion we get back to, we have our four, we have our four medications for Alzheimer's dementia. Anepazil, revivastigmine, and galantamine are centrally acting reversible acetylcholinesterase inhibitors that are thought to help Alzheimer's by addressing by addressing a purported deficiency in cholinergic neurotransmission. Lamantine is an NMDA receptor antagonist, which is thought to have a benefit via inhibition of excitatory neurotoxicity and expression of tau proteins. Um, so over the last decade, as was noted earlier, there has been a rise in the reported number of exposures. Uh, these medications have also been studied kind of off-label for autism, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, and other psychiatric conditions. There is no literature as to how frequently these are being used for off-label uses in children. Um, these off-label uses may result in an increase in the further risk of unintentional pediatric exposures, similar trends with other drugs that are used for ADHD. Um, of course, if we worry, there's a concern when that ingestion of acetylcholinesterase inhibitors could result in cholinergic excess, and very similar to what is seen with carbamate insecticides and cause increased sedation, drooling, diarrhea, and bronchorrhea with CNS toxicity in the situations. Pediatric dimepazil has previously been associated with encephalopathy and bradycardia. However, in both of those cases, with laboratory-confirmed unintentional exposure to dimepazil, they resulted in significant CNS depression and hospitalization. Uh, dimepazil was the most frequently reported exposure, and CNS depression was seen, although still GI symptoms tended to predominate and no bradycardia or cholinergic symptoms were noted. Um, reports of pediatric toxicity from revisostigmine are limited to two case reports from the literature. One of a girl who developed altered mental status and dyspnea after ingesting somewhere between four and a half and nine milligrams of revisostigmine. She was treated with atropine and recovered fully. There's another case of an 11-month-old that resulted in 40 hours with just supportive care. Uh, adult case reports report significant morbidity and death from revisostigmine. Exposure. However, the findings in this study of high rates of reported symptoms in healthcare facility evaluations with provisostigmine are consistent with what we know uh, as a result of these prior case reports of increased morbidity. Um, there are several prior reports for revisostigmine patches in adults, but not in pediatrics. Theoretically, these patches would be similar to what happens when we see fentanyl or clonidine. Uh, however, there are only three cases that were reported in their study and none ever developed symptoms. Two involved the children placing patches on themselves and the other involved the child licking a, a used patch. There are no prior reports of pediatric or adult melanthamine exposures. Uh, they didn't find any association with serious symptoms, but it did result in a 50% uh, of cases being evaluated in a healthcare facility. The only published pediatric case report detailed some prolonged encephalopathy in a two-year-old uh, after laboratory-confirmed ingestion of lamantine, of lamantine. This case was also complicated by the co-ingestion of denepazil, 
of maintaining exposure in their studies associated with a lower rate of symptoms, and of note, no GI symptoms were seen with possible maintaining exposures. Um, the study has quite a few limitations, of course, retrospective data, uh, going back and looking through poison center data, which does not always include all the information you'd like, um, exact dosages and weights and other information that's not available. And um, actual ingestions were not always confirmed, and it is possible that in many of the cases there was no actual ingestion at all, and that maybe some of these children just stayed home or were not reported at all. Their data does suggest that there's unintentional pediatric exposures to this class of medications seem to be relatively safe, but we should do more studies. All in all, what by this thing means on the yeah, certainly by mechanism, at least the three that are um, cholinergic medications are very similar to carbamate pesticides, but at least by this retrospective review, less than 200 cases, um, kids seem to do mostly okay and don't really get in a lot of trouble with it, and when they do have symptoms, it's nothing precipitous. They don't seize out of blue like they might with, you know, um, citalopram. They don't have arrhythmias <coughs> like they could with like a tricyclic antidepressant. So I think a vast majority of these essentially <coughs> could be watched at home with callbacks and see if the kid's looking sleepy or vomiting or drooling. And then um, the memantidine, which is different because it's an, an MDA antagonist, probably reasonably safe, although the total number of cases is pretty small. Um, just to get from perspective from uh, web poison.org, uh, these doses are all over the map and really make very little sense for some of these. For um, denepazole, six months to 23 months, it's greater than 2.5 milligrams, jumps up to 5 milligrams from 2 to 10 years, and um, greater than 11 years up to 10. It essentially boils down almost like a tablet for, you know, if you're less than 2 years old, you get a tablet, you get sent in, and this data certainly don't really bear out that risk. Uh, for rivastigmine, it's even more puzzling recommendations, less than 50 kilos, they'll send a recommendation is to go in if it's a half a milligram, and then suddenly at greater than 50 kilos, they won't send you in unless it's 12 kilograms. Why the sudden quantum jump in milligram amount sent in makes no sense. For the third um, cholinergic drug, galantamine, which tends to come in both IR and SR preparations, there's sort of an incremental uh, dose of 0.5 milligrams up to two years, then it jumps up to one milligram up to five years, two milligrams six to eight years, and then upwards from there. And then mantine has um, some guidelines for greater than five milligrams for most preschool toddlers. And again, none of these may make sense. I think some of these during the day can be watched at home if there's good resources to watch them. I don't think they need admissions to pediatric care hospitals in general. And um, I think we'll see more of these as we see more of these drugs prescribed. Um, I guess begs the question is why is like, I guess it's like a grandparent may have the dementia and the other one doesn't and they're in the home together and the child is being watched by them kind of scenario. Or is it put out for off-label use for ADHD and autism? Yeah, which is could be, so. Well, moving on to another neurologic medication is uh, levetiracetam. Since we have trouble saying that, I will let everyone say the word Keppra as we talk about this. 
But similarly, uh, Olivia is going to tell us about children and Kepra. All right, so I'm going to tell you about an 11-year review of Kepra and Destins in children less than six years of age by Lewis et al. As an introduction, Kepra is generally used for the treatment of refractory partial seizures. Unlike uh, all the other type of seizure medications, it doesn't work by blocking neuronal sodium channels or T-type calcium channels. Its exact mechanism of action is actually unknown. It's thought that it binds to synaptic vesicle glycoprotein, SC2A, and inhibits presynaptic calcium channels. Um, and then this slows impulse conduction. It's not structurally related to any other known anticonvulsant. And metabolism is through enzymatic hydrolysis of its acetamide group, um, not through acetochrome P450 isozyme. It's excreted unchanged in the urine. Generally, it's administered orally, less than 10% protein bound. The maximum recommended dose um, changes based on age, but in children less than six months of age would be 42, and then it, it goes up from there. Um, it's available in immediate release, extended release, and oral solution. The side effects typically seen with Kepra include somnolence, irritability, um, asthenia, and dizziness. And you can also see psychiatric effects more rarely, including aggressiveness, paranoia, psychosis, and irritability. There's very little information regarding unintentional ingestions of Kepra in young children and what doses are likely to be a problem, so that's what this study thought to address. Its methods um, drew from a database from California called CPCS and was retrospective observational case series. They looked at data from October 20, um, 2002 through September 2013. The inclusion criteria for the study were um, all patients with single substance exposure to Kepra age less than six years, evaluated in a healthcare facility, and followed to a known outcome. Um, so there was a two-hour observation period they considered sufficient for asymptomatic patients and knowing the outcome, given um, Kepra's rapid absorption properties. Symptomatic patients were followed until discharge. For their results, they ended up with a total of 82 patients. The number of cases of uh, single-substance Kepra exposures remained fairly low from 2002 to 2006, ranging from one to four cases per year. But from 2007 to 2013, they saw the number increase, ranging from 8 to 12 cases per year in their database. Of these cases, 55% um, of them were female. Median age was two years, but it ranged from four weeks to five years. The median overall dose ingested was 56.6 milligrams per kilogram. And when they looked at all the different patients, um, of all of them, 80.5% had no effect from the drug exposure. Um, there was one case, uh, 15 cases had a minor outcome, which I'll talk about, um, and a moderate outcome in one case. There were no what they classified as major outcomes and no deaths in this study. Um, of the clinical effects that were observed during those cases that did not have no effect, um, they had they observed neurological symptoms such as drowsy and or ataxia. 13.4% uh, of those um, 82 patients developed drowsiness alone, and only two of them developed ataxia, and that's 2.4% of the sample. 
They found no association between ingested dose and development of symptoms. Um, so they, you, that does not really help with constructing a nomogram in the future. Um, the medium observation time from ingestion to discharge was five hours, ranging from two to 72 hours. Um, they found that approximately 84% of the exact dose cases were unintentional therapeutic error cases, um, which has been kind of a pattern of the other cases we've seen. Um, the odds of a levotracin-naive um, patient developing drowsiness or ataxia after an acute exposure was found to be six times that of someone who's already been taking it, so an acute on chronic exposure. Um, so to address some of those patterns that were seen in the study, um, I had said before that in 2008, the number of exposures to Keppra rose sharply. Um, they chalked that up to possibly an increased use of Keppra after expansion of the therapeutic indications for the drug in 2004 and 2006. And then it became available as a generic drug, drug in 2008. So basically, more people were using Keppra, and so they saw more exposures to Keppra. Um, there was one other study that was done looking at Keppra um, by Bodmer et al., and they also did a retrospective study. They also um, reported no major outcomes, so the study's findings were consistent with that. Um, and again, in that Bodmer et al. study, they did not find a dose-response relationship either. Um, limitations of this study uh, were that it was retrospective in design and the ingested dose of Capra was, was recorded by the caller. Um, they weren't able to expect, measure blood concentrations of exposures. That's not routinely done. So they were a little bit limited, again, in trying to find that dose-response curve that they, they weren't even sure about the initial ingestion. They were depending on that from the original caller. And then they had a relatively small sample size despite having um, a large spread of the number of years they were pulling data from. Um, so their conclusions from the study were that um, unintentional Keppra exposures produce mild self-limiting symptoms and don't routinely require treatment. Um, and so my take-home points I took away from the study, um, first of all, Keppra is generally um, in children under six years of, old, of age, um, self-limited, mild CNS effects, if anything, but 80% of the people saw no effects at all from the ingestion. Um, you're much more likely, six times more likely, to see those central nervous system effects in people who do not take Keppra routinely, so there's possibly some tolerance that's developing. Um, there's been an increase in Keppra exposure since 2008, and that will probably continue and there's no correlation at this time with reported dose and symptom severity. Yeah, very nice. So, I mean, there was a whole explosion of new anticonvulsant drugs that came out about eight to ten years ago, and Keppra kind of rose to the top of the best side effect profile. It seemed to cause the least amount of sedation. So, not unexpectedly, when kids get into it, we really don't see much in the way of terrible adverse uh, effects. So, and this sort of proves it, then they and they site another study looked at MPTS it also had 74 children in it didn't really have much and then interestingly uh, there was a case report of two kids who got like 10 times the dose in one and four times the dose in another and, and they were fine so they're pretty big you know toxic to therapeutic ratio so despite all that web pc has ascendant amount from six months to 23 months of 40 milligrams per kilogram which is essentially 
the therapeutic dose in children for that age range. And for two years to 11 years, 70 milligrams per kilograms, slightly above the therapeutic dose for those range. So I think those are extremely conservative. And if we were to develop our own internal protocols or poison centers wanted to take a more liberal approach, I think these are the type of ones where if it's during the day, certainly you can watch almost all of these accidental ingestions at home. Of course, we always send in self-harm in teenagers, but this is focusing on kids less than six. And I think they're not going to do anything precipitous. They're not going to suddenly become comatose and aspirate. It just doesn't seem to, to happen with this medication. So pretty good safety profile and maybe time to revise the web. PC guideline, which is based on a very conservative, usual therapeutic dose uh, notion. So changing gears a little bit, um, I don't know why, but I seem to get called on these all the time. Uh, of all the uh, cardiovascular drugs, um, ones that I would consider reasonably benign are the ACE inhibitors, but there really isn't a lot of data out there in children, and I think there's some things in Poisondex that make our C-spies and spies just a little nervous, so I think all of us are nodding our heads around the table. It seems to get called on lisinopril and captopril overdoses. So we're focusing on lisinopril as one of probably the biggest prescribed drugs in this class. We have our visiting, our medical student. Tell us about that. This is a 13-year review of lisinopril ingestion in children less than 6 years of age. It was done by Lewis and Elsa. Just some background, lisinopril is an angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitor. It causes the decreased production of angiotensin II and therefore less aldosterone as well. And causes vasodilation, increased cardiac output, um, decreased peripheral vascular resistance, and increased cerebral, renal, and coronary blood flow. It is used for hypertension, diabetic nephropathy, um, congestive heart failure, and after acute MRI. Um, the onset of action is usually an hour after taking the drug, and it peaks plasma concentration after six hours, and duration of action is about 24 hours. The most common side effect is hypotension, with um, cough, and angioedema are also well-known side effects. It is used in children over six years of age for hypertension at a dose of 0.07 milligrams per kilogram with a max dose of 40 milligrams a day. And manufacturers recommend against its use in kids under five years old. So this is a retrospective study, again, using the California Poison Control System database. They created the database from October 1998 to August 2011 with the inclusion criteria of a single exposure, just lisinopril, children under six years of old, treatment in a healthcare facility, and then followed to a known outcome. They measure, the measures they used were the... Um, uh, minor, moderate, major, and death criteria that we've already discussed before, and hypotension, which uh, among pediatrics they defined as a systolic blood pressure under the 5th percentile for age. Cases with unknown doses were included in the study because that commonly occurs in the emergency department with people with ingestion. So um, they included 296 patients in this study. 51% were male, with an average age of 1.98, so two years old, ranging from nine months to five years. Um, there were minor outcomes in 9% of the cases, 27 cases, moderate in 4%, and no major outcomes or deaths. 
They did note that there has been an increasing frequency of lysinophil ingestions in children from 8 to 27 per year between 1998 to 2006, up to 26 to 58 per year um, between 2007 and 2011. Um, there were only 61 cases in which the exact and the dose was known, the estimated amount was known, um, and a, only a total of eight children developed hypertension across the study. The most common side effect was drowsiness, and that was in 18 of the patients. Um, tachycardia was noted in six, bradycardia in four, vomiting in seven. Um, they stated that the lowest dose causing hypertension, known dose was 50 milligrams, and then occurred in a two-year-old, and the dose was three, of almost four milligrams per kilogram. All but 14 patients were treated in the emergency department and discharged. Um, they only used cases with known ingested dose to develop triage guidelines. They thought that drowsiness was, rather than being due to lysinophil, might have actually been from kids staying up past their bedtime. <laughs> they had no explanation for the bradycardia seen in four patients. And based on this information, they determined that the pediatric lysinophil ingestions of 4 milligrams per kilogram up to 40 milligrams total can be safely managed at home in children under 9 months old. Limitations of this study are, again, retrospective design, and then exposures were based on patient history, not serum concentrations. So this is one uh, where actually the recommendations kind of match what the study found. So their threshold by WebPC to send in is from six months to seven years old is greater than four milligrams per kilogram or greater than 40 milligrams total. So that tends to, I guess, skew the lighter weight uh, kids to maybe a tablet or two getting sent in, which is, I think, conservative, but if you're going to believe that that one person became hypotensive, which is something that parents can't really measure at home, I guess it may be a safe thing to do. Um, yeah, I always wondered about the drowsiness, because I think that's what we get called on, and I always feel like saying, well, if it's during the day, like, have the kid drink plenty of fluid and eat pretty good, but I'm always worrying, well, are they going to get drowsy, and then Someone always brings up, well, there's this case report somewhere that Narcan may work to wake them up. Should we send them in for that? And I, I, I don't think there's a whole lot to weigh in on recommending that. So I think the vast majority of these that are below the threshold are 4 milligrams per kilogram. Hopefully can get watched at home. Some of the ones that are on the edge with the right set of circumstances and the right set of parents can watch them at home. But I guess if it's late in the day or if it's more than that threshold, we're sort of stuck sending a few of these in every uh, now and then. I don't have numbers for the rest of the ACE inhibitors, for which there's about eight on the market, but uh, WebPC does have captopril and every other one in there as well. So we'll just assume that they're equally potent doses of all of those. So one, sort of a split decision on that one, whether or not um, we sent some in and watched some at home. Kind of finishing up with a couple of sort of 
small niche kind of drugs. Um, the first is oxcarbazepine, which is a cousin of Tegretol or carbamazepine itself. And it doesn't exactly work exactly the same way, have the same metabolism, so I always kind of scratch my head a little bit here on those. So Katie, tell us about that one. So the title is 13 Years of Oxcarbazepine Exposures Reported to U.S. Poisoning Centers 2000 to 2012. Um, just the introduction, oxcarbazepine is an analog of carbamazepine. It was approved in 2000, so basically this study has been collected most of the data that's ever been since it's been on the market. It's used as monotherapy or adjunctive therapy in patients with partial and secondary generalized seizures. The major advantage that they say that it has over carbamazepine is that it's more tolerable and has reduced toxicity. So the goal of this paper is to determine if that bears out. They hypothesize it has reduced toxicity because it's metabolized by systolic ketoreductase, so it's not a part of the cytochrome system. Um, and it, it's a prodrug, so the active drug is the monohydroxy metabolite. So the active drug uh, is limited by the rate that it can be converted. So it acts uh, similar to other anticonvulsants. The mechanism is by blocking voltage-gated sodium channels. However, it does not have other toxic properties related to carbamazepine, such as anticholinergic and cardiac sodium channel poisoning. Like I said, their hypothesis is that the conversion in, of the prodrug into the active metabolite, it, they, you can saturate that process. Uh, thus, the rate-limiting step uh, in toxicity is not the amount ingested, but just the rate that you can uh, convert that drug. So it's a retrospective analysis. It's from the MPDS, single substance ingestions only from 2000 to 2012. I was surprised because for a drug that I didn't think was that commonly used, they were able to get 18,867 cases over that time. Mm -hmm. And 62% uh, of those were pediatric exposures and 29% were kids less than six years old. So it's a decently, um, Howard study. They have a lot of kids in it. The most commonly reported effect they saw was drowsiness and lethargy, vomiting, dizziness and vertigo, tachycardia, and they broke that into all patients and then kids less than six. So of all patients, 25% had drowsiness and lethargy. Of patients less than six, 17% had that. For vomiting, 8.4% of all patients, 4.1% of those less than six. And then it just, everything gets significantly less down into the single digits for the pediatric patients. I will point out one of the big side effects of carbamazepine toxicity that we worry about is seizure. And that is very low down the list for um, oxcarbazepine. You only see 0.5% of kids less than six um, reported had a seizure. The, they went on to describe some of the therapies administered to those that were seen, and the most common therapy, less than 2% required any intervention, and of those that did, the most common was oxygen, given to 1.95%. 1% were intubated, and 0.94% received benzodiazepines, and unfortunately, they didn't split this into pediatric or adults, so this includes all patients. So of all the, the um, effects, they classified similar to everything, major or minor, 
uh, moderate nature and death. And only 0.9% of the cases had a major effect. That's of all patients. And for kids less than six, it was 0.57% had a major effect. 68% of those that effects that were major were intentional overdoses. Moderate effects is even um, more uh, less likely to um, be more prominent in kids. So 9% of all the cases were moderate effects, but for kids it was only 5.5%. So kids are certainly less affected by this drug. There were five fatalities. All five of them were adults and all five of them were intentional ingestions. They don't comment at all on the dose taken in. Of all the ingestions, 35 or 53% of adults and 38% of children were managed in a healthcare facility. So the, they, they discuss some of the things I've already talked briefly about, but the severe outcomes were very infrequent in young children, and they're infrequent pretty much across the board in adults and young children, but even less so in the kids. The, they hypothesize that's because uh, kids take in less of a dose um, through exploratory behavior. They also hypothesize that kids can clear monohydroxy metabolites faster than adults. Other things that they comment on is that the oxcarbazepine is not significantly proconvulsant in overdose, which is a big concern in related drugs. They made interesting comments on electrolyte abnormalities, although they were only reported in 0.2% of patients, and even less so in those kids less than six. Um, the database doesn't specify what the electrolyte abnormalities are, but they hypothesize hyponatremia. There were a few limitations similar to all the studies. We don't have a dose dependence, uh, so you can't like make any assumptions based on doses and that it was a retrospective study and that they can't confirm the exposures because many of these were phone calls. But their conclusion is that if the caller has only mild symptoms, uh, observation at home in consultation with a poison center is an appropriate recommendation in the majority of cases. Yeah, so one of the few articles that came out was a more declarative conclusion of observation at home may be okay rather than more studies needed kind of thing. I, I, I'm with you. I think there's a surprising number of cases out there that this drug's only been on the market for 10 years and certainly doesn't occupy a, a huge niche in the anticonvulsive uh, array of things. But severe things are rare, but it must be pointed out that, you know, 0.0... 5% of kids less than 6 had seizures, so it's a possibility. You kind of wonder whether they had seizures because it was their drug and yeah. they didn't take it or they missed a dose or what the exact scenario was, and that's not really teased out here. But I kind of agree with their conclusion that I think that most of these that take a drug that's not theirs or a parent's or a babysitter's drug probably can be watched at home. Again, calling back to see if they're developing symptoms is important, if they start developing drowsiness. It's always hard to tell around the bedtime whether that's normal or part of uh, the drug, but I guess the ones that become symptomatic potentially could get sent in. As a reference, with a numeric number, WebPC for all ages across the board says greater than 400 milligrams per kilogram, which I think is the upper end of their therapeutic dosing gets sent in. And again, that may be pretty conservative number. Um, but I think this is one kind of like Kefra maybe a little less comfortable than Capra, but I think in the vast majority of K-12 
cases can be can be watched at home, realizing that a few of these may be at risk for seasoning, but no one's going to die. None of these kids are going to die. So one more drug I do worry about seizures with a little bit, because I always kind of lump this one with tramadol, which we clearly see seizures with, but sort of the second generation um, novel uh, opioid substance, Tependidol, uh, came on the market a while back, and we do get occasional calls on that. So, Matt, tell us a little bit about that yes. one. So this is the article from February 2015 called Pentadol Toxicity in Kids, um, and it was published in Pediatrics. So, um, they start off by talking about the current opiate, uh, opioid epidemic, and that's kind of led to the development of other novel analgesics. And, uh, pentadol, just like tramadol, is one of these. And kind of the novel mechanism, I guess you can say, is um, kind of combines both a mu agonist with a norepi reuptake inhibitor, just like tramadol. So it was, a, it was approved in 2008. Um, because of that, kind of its niche in more kind of chronic pain and kind of a, a specific. Uh, there's been. Um, very limited data on overdose. So this study was trying to look at the effects and outcomes of, of pediatric exposures. So just like all the other ones, we did a retrospective review looking at NPDS data. They included all kids uh, under 18 from 2008 to 2013 with a single substance acute ingestion of Tependidol. Um, kind of interesting, they report their primary goals to determine the incidence of Tependidol exposure in NPDS patients. It's kind of hard to do that with NPDS given kind of all the, uh, the limitations that, that we've talked about today. Um, so in terms of the results that they found, they only found 104 patients. So this is not the tens of thousands uh, of patients that we've been talking about with, with other uh, drugs. Median age, similar to other ones, uh, other studies we've been talking about, about two years old, 50-50 males and females. Uh, mainly unintentional exposures, but there were a uh, few cases of abuse um, and uh, kind of recreational use. There's a few suicide attempts as well. Overall, 60% uh, of the patients had no effects, a third had minor effects, and then about 8% had moderate or major effects, and overall there were no, uh, no deaths. They kind of break down the clinical effects shown in table one. It's really drowsiness being the most common effect seen in, in 30 patients. Uh, and then kind of scattered, uh, you know, one or two of, uh, kind of nausea, vomiting, meiosis, tachycardia, respiratory depression, vertigo. Um, kind of interesting, exactly like Zane was saying, you would have expected, you know, potentially some more uh, seizures or this is also a serotonergic drug, uh, some other serotonergic uh, manifestations we don't see. We, at least in their uh, breakdown, uh, there, were, there were no seizures. Um, so 80% of these guys were treated in, the, uh, in a hospital. 80% of those were just treated and released. Um, in terms of who got treatment, um, 53, a little over half, got no intervention. 17 got charcoal. 10 got dilution, which... They didn't really explain what that meant. Uh, seven, didn't, did, seven did get naloxone, and seven got life-saving food. Mm -hmm. um, 
two out of the 104, two did get uh, life-threatening uh, respiratory depression or the need for uh, oxygen. And it kind of break down in table two, kind of what happened uh, with the moderate major effects. And you can kind of see the doses, at least that were reported. The two major effects, it was a nine-month-old that got one tablet, and the other one was a 16-month-old that got two tablets. So that's kind of all the um, dose response information that we have. Um, going to go on uh, into their discussion and saying that you know these effects are pretty similar to what they saw pre-marketing and in their clinical trials and uh, what they've seen with, with tramadol as well. And they kind of do go on to say that um, uh, uh, pentadol is a also a weak serotonin reuptake inhibitor and so you, you, know, you know some of the tachycardia um, Maybe related to that, but also likely to the norepi reuptake inhibitor um, effect. <clears throat> and then they do say, kind of uh, go over a, a radars review, which is kind of a, a repository of you know research looking at the abuse potential, and it's it's pretty similar to tramadol, uh, although they think it's a little bit less so than uh, oxycodone or, or hydrocodone. Um, and then the kind of the, the kind of the standard limitations of NPDES data. So, I mean, I think what I got out of this was that in a toddler, you know, one tablet's enough to, to get you sick, and yep. I would send you in um, <coughs> to kind of enter any any exposure in a toddler. Um, you know, once you get into the, the teens, you know, it's, it's probably uh, safe with one tablet, but teens, you got to ask why they're why they had the exposure in the first place. All right. Yeah, so small numbers, really, maybe the smallest total numbers of any of the uh, group we talked about, but pathophysiologically, this is a, a, a mu opiate receptor agonist, so it's uh, an opioid, and it's a norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, although really none of these kids develop seizures. And interestingly, they talk in its mechanism that it may act a little bit as an alpha-2 agonist, so it's kind of like a cross between a you know, a clonidine and an opioid together all wrapped in one single tablet, which may have some effect for pain control, but certainly in kids, this gives us even more cause uh, to worry. Um, Web poison says send them all in basically um, six months to five years, and from six years to 12 years, they say greater than 25 milligrams, and since that's the smallest tablet, that means they all go in. So. No wiggle room for safety just yet in these, and I think we need to maybe look at bigger dose numbers and figure out if they go in, try to nail down how many milligrams per kilogram they got or how many milligrams and do the calculation. Who needs Narcan? Who needs something more than just uh, food and observations for us trying to create a, a dose response curve for is there a safe dose? And I don't know if there ever will be one, but... Um, still makes up a minority of sort of the alternative opioids out there, but that may change as we're seeing changes in the total number of morphine equivalents of drugs that we're going to be prescribing, hopefully based on new CDC guidelines. Yeah. So who knows where the future holds for Tependidol and for Tramadol itself. I'm going to finish up with one more drug that we do worry about seizures, which is venlafaxine, which has been around um, for a while. This was the first of the SNRIs um, approved way back in 1993. It was approved for adult patients with 
major depressive disorder, general anxiety disorder, panic disorder, but as many of these other psych drugs that we see, there's lots and lots of off-label uses, including ADHD, binge eating, bipolar, diabetic neuropathy, menopausal flushing, OCD disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, and etc. Um, there is not a safe dose established in children, but it's used off-label in children, and many cite several articles that suggest it may be helpful in children for depression and anxiety disorders. Um, it's got a variety of adverse drug effects based on both its serotonergic and norepinephrine stimulating properties. It's got no a lot of GI effects, nausea, constipation, and diarrhea and vomiting. CNS, including dizziness and fatigue and insomnia, nervousness, cardiovascular, including hypertension and arrhythmias. And although not said here, the one we worry the most about is uh, seizures. Um, there was a previous review of 235 patients in adults who had ingested venlafaxine, found the most common side effect in that group was tachycardia, dilated pupils, and QT prolongation, and transient arrhythmias were rare, but again, you know, may not have been a significant amount of poisoning. However, there have been more than a few venlafaxine-associated deaths in adults, one with 12 grams, one with 14 grams, pretty big amounts. The threshold dose for severe and potentially life-threatening overdose in adults is probably as low as 1,500 milligrams or one and a half grams. And then overdoses of greater than eight grams often have cardiovascular effects like VTAC and cardiac arrest. Um, and they mentioned serotonin syndrome. Overdose in one 13-year-old girl has been previously reported in a case report of a little more than seven grams. And she had a self-limited tonic-clonic seizure an hour after she presented and then two more seizures in the emergency department, which responded to lorazepam. So once again, this was a retrospective review. This was the California Poison Center database from 2001 to 2011, an 11-year span, looking again at age less than 20 years, um, venlafaxine-only single substance ingestions that were managed in a healthcare facility and followed to an outcome similar to the other California studies. Um, and they ended up, during that same time period, there were 704 SNRI uh, single-substance ingestions, of which 56% of them, or 394, were venlafaxine. The other SNRIs, for point of reference, were duloxetine, milnisipran, and desvenlafaxine, which is kind of a prodrug to venlafaxine, but metabolized slowly. Um, the same basic rules that we've been talking about all uh, day here applied as far as what they looked at. So those 394 cases that were single ingestions in children, they had to exclude some uh, for a variety of reasons, and they ended up with 262 that were included in their final analysis. The age range was seven months to 19 years. The vast majority of were female, sort of uh, departing from a lot of these relatively 50-50 curves, almost two-thirds were female on a dose-per-weight-based um, uh, milligram per kilogram with 18.3 milligrams per kilogram with the mean or average weight. Um, and they were able to get weights and doses in about over, a little over half of patients. And they exceeded what was previously felt to be the toxic dose of 10 milligrams per kilogram. Um, there was no effect in half, 51%. Um, 
As far as vital signs go, 104 of the 162 cases had a heart rate greater than 100, 46 had a heart rate greater than 120, and only four had a heart rate greater than 160. The most common observed or to uh, toxicities that were reported to the California system were nausea, vomiting, GI effects, some altered mental status, including lethargy and somnolence, a little bit of nervousness and confusion. And um, four patients did, in fact, or 1.5% of the total of uh, venlafaxine overdoses had seizures or a serious side effect. The majority of cases were, of 10 of the 12, were classified as moderate, and only two were major. And these almost all of these occurred in teenagers who had taken drugs for either misuse or intentional overdose. So once again, uh, the majority of cases uh, resulted in exposure greater than the prior threshold of concern, which was 10 milligrams per kilogram, and 50% of them had no clinical effects. Again, there's no way to verify whether they took it or not in almost all these cases, essentially. There's 12 cases that were classified as moderate and uh, three is major. There was no deaths. The estimated dose in those were actually lower at 5.5 milligrams um, in two of those cases. Um, and so they say 5.5 is often cited in the literature as a threshold for pediatrics and they consider it conservative at best. Um, tachycardia seemed to be common. Seizures happened and although they seem to be rare, they did happen in four children. Um, so in contrast, adult data, they really didn't have any EKG data, so they couldn't look at QT intervals and QRS intervals and other things we might be interested in. Well, the same sort of limitations apply in that, um, you know, this is a retrospective <coughs> study with, uh, based on what it was called in the poison center and not verified with lab testing. Um, so they felt the vast majority of venlafaxine ingestions in children up to 20 years old, and I guess there's two different groups there, really had minimal or no clinical effects. But I think there's a risk in taking that too far in that I think some of these uh, cases do in fact end up with seizures. For a point of reference, WebPC says six months to seven years, greater than 25 milligrams, send in from eight years to 12 years, 37.5 milligrams can be sent in in adults jumps up substantially greater than 225 milligrams. So it's about one-tenth the adult dose for toddlers gets sent in. And I think it's hard to create a line in the sand because they weren't able to create one either. And certainly the 10 per kilo dose is pretty close to that threshold. So in review, we can go back and so you guys have a little scorecard for when you're on call. So for bromethylene, the new novel rodenticide, probably safe, probably can be watched at home. For citalopram, a narrow margin of safety, many of which will get sent in to be watched for seizures and arrhythmias. For clonidine and the other alpha-2 agonists, again, probably going to be sending a lot of those in, even at one pill, although one pill won't kill them, one kill pill will make them symptomatic. For uh, the anti-dementia drugs, the cholinergic agents probably have a fair margin of safety with rivastigmine perhaps being the one that may make you sit up and take notice and be more conservative on. Uh, for Keppra, probably safe at many doses uh, to be watched at least initially at home with a callback. Same with lisinopril, those as well. Oxcarbamazepine, kind of a split decision. Perhaps higher doses of those may need to get sent in. 
to pend it all. We're stuck with a one pill and you go in similar to many of our opiates, which would probably include methadone and buprenorphine and all the other ones which we send in any dose in children. And unfortunately with venlafaxine, the way it's dosed pretty much it's also a one pill send in and likely to kill, but certainly symptomatic. So about a split decision out of our uh, eight drugs that we reviewed, about half we're still stuck sending in many of these and about half perhaps give us a little bit of margin of safety to uh, watch many of these at home. So any comments from the group or from our colleagues uh, listening in? No. All right. Well, I guess we'll cut it off there and we will see you next time.